Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Max Porter... On his latest book, Shy. Max Porter is the author of Lanny, long-listed for the Booker Prize, and Grief is the Thing with Feathers, winner of the International Dylan Thomas Prize. He is the recipient of the Sunday Times Peter Fraser and Dunlop Young Writer of the Year Award and his work has been translated into 30 languages. And today we're going to talk about Max's latest book, which is Shy. Max, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe Shy. I would describe Shy as a nocturne, like a, a kind of three hours in the life of study of a person's consciousness and how other people's consciousnesses act upon it. It's apparently not very in vogue to talk about polyphonic novels because I think publishers just started saying everything was polyphonic. (laughs) Anything that had more than one character and it was polyphonic. But I do utilise the voices of the therapist, his uh, sort of despairing mum and stepdad, teachers in the school where he's living and other boys. So, yeah, it's a polyphonic portrait of three hours in the life of a very unhappy boy in 1995 whose only real love in this life is drum and bass, jungle. So we'll come back to the polyphonic voices in a minute, but Shy is the titular character. So tell us something about who he is. He's a white middle-class boy from uh, somewhere in the home counties who has been expelled from two schools and had various different run-ins with the law and done some very violent things. He's, He's made two or three really catastrophic errors in his life and therefore has been sent to a kind of progressive educational establishment, which is a judge's decision to send him there, and it's his basically his last option before going to Borstal. So it's an attempt to kind of rescue him one more time with education before he gets sent to a Borstal. And this place is called, in a not especially tongue-in-cheek way, the Last Chance School. And it's based on, on establishments of that kind in the 90s. And he, yeah, he's living there. He uh, is obsessed with drum and bass. And he has headed out at 3 a.m. He's escaped from the last chance at 3 a.m. with nothing but his Walkman, uh, his final spliff, his final joint, and um, a very, very heavy backpack full of flints, full of rocks. And so let's talk about why 1995 then. 
Well, there's a few reasons, and, and some of them become a bit more clear to me as I'm talking about the book with people now, such as, you know, crucially before mobile phones, before the internet, you know, before social media fundamentally changed the landscape of communication between all humans, but, you know, between, in this case, teenagers, and specifically teenage boys, actually, because there are great differences between boys and girls at this age, I think, in the way they behave, and particularly now in the way they utilise or, or weaponize social media. Um, so that was something I didn't want to write about, actually. I don't feel qualified to write about that. And I was interested in the idea of a historical novel, but quite recent, to sort of to sort of shine a light on our own time, politically and socially, but also kind of linguistically and in the behaviour of these young people. Then I, when I knew I wanted him to have him this, this kind of thing that tugs him along, this love of music, I, I chose something that I was close enough, I'm close enough to his feelings in as much as I I'm probably about two or three years younger than Shy, but I did love that music. I, I have more eclectic taste than Shy, but I, I do appreciate his passion for that music and that the, the feeling he has, which is it's sort of a scene to be proud of in this country, but also a um, like the future sound. You know, it sounds like the future, and it creates in him an ecstasy that he's never felt anywhere else. So I, I, I felt excited about writing about that for him. Also, I suppose. Um, a little curiosity about some of the kind of established mores of, uh, of of historical fiction writing, whether I could play with them, tease them a bit, maybe break some of those rules deliberately, but also think about what those rules were and whether they apply to to the near past or, you know, basically how far, you know, how far away is 1994? You know, because I could write a novel set last week and by definition it would be a historical novel. So I was kind of interested in how far away 1995 is and what it might have felt like to be there and to sort of push it up against, yeah, push it up against the socioeconomic climate of the present. Uh, and sort of tease it from a point of view of of a person who is stuck in what, you know, in a situation many people find themselves in now, and I think sort of politically we find ourselves in now as a species on a kind of global level. I've been really taken by some of the language that in, in the IPCC report recently to, to help me understand shy. You know, this thing of, you know, scientists now describe us as being in a doom loop. And I, and I you know, shy is in a doom loop. So I suppose what I was doing was trying to trying to sort of think about the present through the lens of this boy in 1995. And yeah. thinking on that note, like the, this school, as you said, the school that he's at, Last Chance, is it's sort of written to be typical institution of that era, an era that is 30 years ago-ish. And we would normally, in discussing things like this, be thinking, well, you know, things were bad back then, but like how has how has healthcare improved? And it, there's certain ways in which diagnosis, for instance, will have improved. And we'll talk about, you know, he's clearly got a number of sort of undiagnosed issues. But at the same time, the terrible truth is that this is probably the high point of this type of residential school treatment for boys of this age and things have probably progressively got worse since then yeah and i don't need to spell that out most readers will feel that i think that things have got worse in terms of funding um and things have got worse in terms of the ideological insistence that places like this serve a very important purpose but also in the creation of people like shy and those less fortunate than him there there has been a, a sort of across the entire terrain of British society a worsening of those circumstances. You know, so a drop of a drop in literacy rates, a drop in in act. You know, in a specific case of young men, there's been you know a rise in suicide rates, a rise in joblessness, a, you know, a rise in domestic abuse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, and, and that's you know that's that's unequivocally in a hundred percent lies at the door of twelve years of Tory rule, and everybody and everybody knows that themselves included. So I, I didn't want to labour those points, but I think it, it shows them up quite starkly. 
But there's also, as you say, this this idea of the high point. I think in the historical record, you know, these books come out about the 90s and it's got this, still there's this kind of weird, sickly residue of the idea of cool Britannia, isn't there? And it's got a moment when like everything was great and it was like cool to be British. And I just think it was a sham then and it's a sham now. And I think that one of the kind of types of people best able to expose that sham or, or, or perhaps always most keenly aware of the extent to which it was a, a product of kind of PR or or, or self-righteousness or indeed like, in, in you know, as is the British way, flat out denial about our colonial past or our, or our um, corrupt present. Like just the sense that um, teenagers were always like, fuck are you talking about? You know, like, you know, like that kind of belch of teenage rage or disillusion is, in fact, kind of the truest response there is to that period and to, to our current period. You know what I mean? We, we often belittle it as kind of teenage anger or disaffection, where they are, in fact, absolutely spot on. So, you know, his his sense of the, the things he's learning in his history lessons and the things he's learning about crime and punishment, not just on a vertical axis from his teachers and his parents, but with his peers, you know, the things he's learning about with his mates in the school about gender and, and um, politics and race and class, you know, are like weirdly because they're a bunch of grunting, smelly, farting, stoned, uh, like violent teenagers, weirdly incredibly sophisticated bunch of young people communicating in quite nuanced ways about what the society they find themselves in does to them and for them. So, um, yeah, I think that was all it all became. I didn't want to essay around our current multiple crises, but they kept rearing their heads, you know, in a way that made me feel I was onto something. Well, you mentioned the sort of ridiculousness of Cool Britannia and all that. And I think a less brave book might have set this story in 1999 or something, whereas this is explicitly before. Mm. John Major is prime minister in this novel, not that he's ever mentioned, but, you know, we know that that's the case. This is explicitly even before New Labour and and a a couple of decades where, you know, it, it did seem like things could only get better. Yeah. Oh, don't you even saying that gives me terrible flashbacks to that song. I think, um, well, that's a very powerful drug, isn't it? And, you know, and, and, and everybody was was um, intoxicated with that for a very long time, which which led to some extraordinary, you know, changes in the social landscape of this country, for which we will always be grateful. It led to some uh, terrible atrocities of, of, of real politics and, and also like some some kind of diseases crept into the British body of politics then, which we're still dealing with the consequences or symptoms of now. But that, yeah, I wanted I wanted this kind of blunt outsiderness, this kind of strange, like as I say, sort of weirdly prophetic um, disillusionment to be present in in Shai's attitude towards it, which has come, which has sort of come to be validated, rather than that sense of telling teenagers they'll get over it, or you wait, you know, you you know, um, you know, one day you'll be a centrist dad, and and him saying no, I don't, I don't think I will, you know, there's, there's this sort of sense of the present always needs to justify its own contaminated complicity with with the kind of status quo by by belittling its previous hope you know by belittling any hope it previously had we see it with the climate movement now you know so yeah i guess i just wanted that kind of um very unspecific as you say john major's never named but it's unmistakably that moment isn't it you know and even his teachers saying to them you know you'll get to vote in the in the 1997 election and that's change you know <laughs> and them going no it's rigged it's bullshit you know is um is a, is a valid response it's a bit like teenage love you know when we say to teenagers you know oh you'll get over it or you know i know it feels like a broken heart right now but it's just a crush or whatever and actually we're quite wrong about that it is probably the most intense and vivid and authentic emotional experience of, of a lifetime the way you feel back then 
I mentioned that one of the things that would probably be different now is that Shy would have a probably a, a number, a long string of um, of diagnoses about disorders or things that he might be dealing with. You mentioned that he's like he's not a, a kid from a disadvantaged background, and in fact, that's pointed out a number of times in the novel by other people that are in this school, yeah. not least the uh, the black kids that are in this school. So what? If we were talking about this now, I guess, not not in the world of the novel itself, but perhaps if, if this novel was set today, mm. let's talk about what is his deal? What's wrong with him? Well, I don't, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I've had to occupy the position of, of his mother and his stepdad and his teachers and his friends. And, you know, as well as thinking about him from 20, you know, I wrote a chunk of this novel that was 20 years hence um, with the teacher and the mother. And I binned it in the end because it seemed to make explicit some of the things I wanted to be ambivalent in the novel. But it also seemed, yeah, it seemed to use diagnostic language or kind of expositional language about Shy that I that I felt was counterproductive to the reader's ability to think about him. And I, I'm reluctant to put any any actual labels on him, but I, I, I totally agree with you that they would be on him now. They'd be on him like a, they'd be on him like he's a you know top shop shirt, you know, all priced up and ready to go into the mental health market. Um, but I suppose one of the things that interests me about diagnoses is that is the way in which they exacerbate existing social inequalities. So, you know, diagnosis rates being much lower for women because they have because of various sexist things built into the medical system, but also because of women's ability, you know, masking behaviours over the course of history. And similarly with like with people of colour and um, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, the diagnostic thing can often be a form of entrapment or, you know, as I say, a form of exacerbation for things that are, are already stacked against them and so i think one of the things that's you know the kind of cleanest diagnosis of shy from a kind of literary point of view from a novelistic or emotional point of view as someone that's looking at him is that he's a spoiled prick you know that he's squandering his privilege and that he is part of that huge what we're probably more familiar with from a cultural point of view from america from the kind of huge sprawl of suburban middle-class male experience in the 90s the kind of the Cobain era of you know just turning your back on this system and and turning your disillusionment or existential confusion into self-harm or rage or smashing up your guitar or whatever it is so I think Shy is, is closer to that than he is to the kind of more statistically minded or economically explicable or, or yeah or sort of psychosexually explicable today's teen which has been sort of run through various different um mainly like it's not just pharmaceutical but neuroscientifical modeling isn't it you know kids today have been put through these kind of models that explain their behavior in a way that i I wanted to save shy from but also have him there as a kind of uh test case for the reader to subject to those models if they wish do you know what i mean by that that whereas where it's a bit like with lanny um lanny is sort of absence in the book in order for readers to say to sort of diagnose him themselves so like in a right-wing newspaper someone the other day said you know he's totally twee and he's the kind of kid that says awful things like you know and there's also this quote they always pull out what do you think's more hopeful and i you know what do you think's more patient an idea or a hope and as if the whole book is full of things like that and that is in fact something that lanny says that annoys his dad in the middle of the night like it's an example of a thing that his dad finds annoying about his son it's not me it's not the book it's something a character says. It's a bit like judging Pride and Prejudice on some pompous thing that Darcy says. And it's it's a funny way to read fiction, but, I, but I'm aware that that is how people read fiction. So, you know, Americans very often in the death, their discussions of Lanny immediately and unquestioningly diagnosed him. He was written off quite often in American reviews as an autistic child. And I never mention that. And I don't actually think I write many behaviours onto Lanny that would suggest that diagnosis, actually. 
So I'm aware that that's something that happens in fiction. But I suppose by removing him from a contemporary, like his therapist is in there, but it's all very CBT mind maps and stuff. It, 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 the therapy itself is quite dated. And I, as someone that doesn't, I, I don't have therapy myself. So I'm not entirely sure even what more contemporary modes of therapeutic frameworks would be for, for a modern teenager. So I, so I was sort of pleased to keep that all out, knowing that that would be an opportunity for the reader. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Max Porter, and we're talking about his latest novel, Shy. And Max, something about the the style and the and the voices in the novel. This is it's very much a recognizably a Max Porter novel. You use language and the text even on Ouch. the page in interesting ways. That was a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and um and multiple, as you said, it's a polyphonic novel. There are multiple voices. One of which I particularly want to talk about, which is if not exactly a voice, but like <clears throat> excerpts of a film, a documentary that is being made mm. about the school, which is immediately recognisable as one of those documentaries you used to get in the 90s about mm. an institution and about the people working there. And I can, I can read in this documentary, I can picture it and I can see the colour grade of the, of the yeah. film and I can picture these, you know, the teachers and the social workers at the school. Was that influenced by anything in particular? 
there was <clears throat> yeah multiple things really and, and 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 it's nice that you say that you immediately feel it because there's actually only two maybe three moments it's like so it's like it's probably less than 100 words all in all but i did hope it would have that immediately palpable kind of um pre bbc 4 isn't it so it would be like yeah it would be on channel bbc 2 or, this yeah bbc 2 or channel 4 those kind of like they, they don't have huge budgets in it like I always feel like people like TV presenters like Peter Taylor, you know, would do it sort of like when they're not doing a big, well-funded thing about the IRA, they'll do like one of these slightly kind of panoramary style things. There is one, I I can't remember where, I think it's it's either a school near here that I was kind of interested in because I found out it was one of these things, or it was a kind of revisiting the kind of Grange Hill era, you know, badly behaved kids in a school. Like, like all those things in a way, like, I mean, I haven't really thought about this, but Biker Grove and things, you know, that sense of like, and this is the common room. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is Eddie. Don't be cheeky, Eddie. And like Eddie does a middle finger to the camera. I love that stuff. And it feels part of a sort of rich part of our, like the aesthetic of it, but also the intent of it feels like a really valuable part of our social documentary heritage, you know, and a thing that, that should always, you know, get funding and be seen. And yeah, so I don't know. No, there's no particular influence for it, really. Although I like it. It's funny that you say it's a, a Max Porter book because I, I I think I'm more brutal this time around about the value of different inclusions. I took so much more out this time. I took out anything really that was me, and I took out anything really that didn't seem to generate feeling either side of itself. So so those documentary things for me are like they only kind of serve their purpose right next to shy being very alone in the night, or to the boys, you know, to a kind of sense of what the pedagogical or, or social, or, you know, emotional atmosphere in the school was. They sort of serve a kind of clean outsider poking in, which means that later when they tell him that the school is closing and Shai's very upset about that, there's a kind of sterile um, language of the academy or the institution to those social documentary bits that seem to sort of expose Shai or, or like bristle Shai, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, I'm always including things for what they might do in relation to the other things I've already included. And they felt quite important to me, those things. It's only for that, as you say, that like initial moment of, you know, the camera pans across the lawn and the few of them are kicking a football around and one of them's having a ciggy on the wall. And I, I wanted that to be extremely... I'm still a visual writer first and foremost, and even in even in a piece that I think of as a musical piece, I still want these kind of... these visual registers to click and pop in the viewer's mind. And maybe that is... Maybe that is particularly speaking to someone that remembers that stuff. I mean, someone said the other day, you know, oh, them going to a record shop and asking for an extra plastic bag, you know, just broke me. <laughs> Of all the things in the book that would move somebody, you know, there's so many kind of, there's so many tender things and things about parenting and things about bullying and things, you know, there's the sex stuff and the violence and all this stuff that I, you know, I hope might pop in people's heads, but it was actually asking for an extra plastic bag in black market records that had really moved a 45 year old bloke. So you never can tell, but I think the harder you work on making them, not necessarily making them realistic or believable or, or authentic or whatever, but it's how you deploy them in, in the kind of, uh, fabric of the whole in the texture of the whole piece uh, and yeah they did they did feel important to me those those documentary bits bearing in mind that a lot of this is filtered through shy's rather fractured mental framework the school itself seems to be haunted with the voices of previous residents as well and i just wanted to talk a little bit about you know including that sort of almost supernatural element in the book well, that's when I can't resist, really, you know, and you've you've read my work with great attention over the years. So, you know, you can probably recognize now when I'm when I'm like, ah, oh, fuck it, here goes, you know, 
but it wasn't just it wasn't like Lanny where I needed a mythic voyeur. It wasn't like grief when I needed a crow that could play with you know that could destroy language in order to satisfy the kind of emotional requirements of his clients, as it were. Um, it, it felt very different this time, and, and I think probably related to the thinking I've been doing about consciousness as a literary surface and uh, how to write the fact that we are porous and that the living and the dead, you know, the, the membrane between the living and the dead is is thinner than than this, uh, you know, Apple Watch wearing um, longevity obsessed contemporary mode would have us believe and that we know. Similarly, the line between the human and the non-human is, is very thin and that we are closer to dead, uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but closer to dead animals or dead human beings or our ancestors or indeed, you know, the atomic makeup of, of stars and trees and leaves than we would give ourselves credit for in our, in our day-to-day lives. So I was keenly aware that that was what I wanted to happen to Shy. And I really didn't want it to be a, oh, uh, saving him from, from taking his own life because I don't believe that that is a, the, the moral imperative of, of this book or, or should be the moral imperative of any discussion of uh, suicide. I wanted it to be more generous and more compassionate towards his feelings than that. Um, and so what it came to was a sort of um, using of the mystical register as a kind of blowing of his mind, really, of an everyday miracle. And I don't mean a, an enli- um, a sort of single ecstatic enlightened moment where you go, oh, I'm not going to I'm not going to take my own life tonight because I suddenly realised I'm made of the same stuff as stars and it's beautiful. That will be really naff. Uh, it's more that these funny thickenings of the air or, or tricks of the uncanny relationship between us and our past or everyday hauntings or weird miracles of, of the mind would be a thing that makes us go through one turnstile or the other as, as we go into the football games you know what i mean like this this is fate this is life and, and that if you dial into anyone's life it, you know if you if you choose any existence in the history of human existences and take one year and then dial right down into one night and then just take three hours whether that person is awake or asleep or a tudor or a nazi or a caveman there is an extraordinary array of sort of switches and flicks and levers being pulled and and some of it's social and some of it's you know, philosophical and some of it's historical, but there's hugely interesting things occurring. And I just, I guess I just wanted to to do a sort of, like a sort of jump off, like it's almost a sort of, yeah, mystical jump off when he gets to the place he's going to in this book. Partly to give the reader really something to chew on in, in the movement between his mind and other people's mind and, and the past and the present, and all this sort of stuff. Like as a literary thing, I hope it's like, I'm really proud of that last, we don't want to do any spoilers, but I'll just call it the Eve, the Eve scene, the Eve dream. Like, I think I've got something that I've been trying to get in all my books to happen there. And I don't think it's for, you know, it's not for me. It doesn't, it's not like I, it, it, it's a collaborative undertaking between me and the reader. And they have to, they have to be inside that language. They have to be inside that texture. And um, that really interests me. And I, and it's what I look for in music and art. And it's what I look for in, in literature is that visceral bodily engagement of my own feelings when I'm in the work. And that required this sort of experiment, this sort of set piece towards the end. And I and I hope the book, like all my books, I hope it trains you, like the multi voices in Lanny and the kind of um, the kind of Lynchian game show thing at the end of that book, and like the sentimental stuff in Grief. Like I hope the book has trained you to get to this point, not in an examined way. You're examining your response to it. I hope at that point in the book, um, and I hope that's rewarding. Even if you think it's a load of bollocks, I hope it's a rewarding repulsion that you feel towards those scenes. Yeah. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit then? I'm going to give you a nice in this world bit. 
when his mum said that she'd gone and bought a 10 pack of number ones and he could have those cigarettes and he could even smoke those cigarettes at home in the driveway so long as he put the butts in the wheelie bin on the condition that he sit down and watch a holiday vid with her and Ian and he agreed so she gave him the fags and he went out and smoked one came in and joined them in the living room and Ian had his camcorder box down from the loft the VHS tapes labelled all neat in their cases and he popped in Water Sprinkler Charmouth 86 and they watched the video and little Shy went pegging it off into the sea and his mum laughed and Ian laughed and Shy hopped and skipped in the shallows and pegged it back and then he tapped a rock with his special hammer. He didn't find a fossil and then Ian flew a kite while his mum laughed at him and then his mum ran down to the sea, squealed at the cold and ran back laughing, shouting, Turn it off, Ian! Turn it off, you bugger! And then Ian did a commentary on shy lifting stones. Surely not. Surely the young lad's not going to get a boulder of that size up and off the... Oh, cripey Mikey, he's gone and done it. Bend your knees, mate. Unbelievable scenes here at the world's strongest boy competition. And then it cuts to the back garden later that summer. And shy is in his spidey suit. Too small, short on his skinny wrists and ankles, wet and clinging to him. He's leaping through the sprinkler, and as he reaches Ian, he star jumps and shouts, Born! into the camcorder lens, and as he runs away, he sings, In the USA! And he turns at the end of the garden by the greenhouse, and he comes back again, leaping through the sprinkler, Born! sprinkling back up the garden, In the USA! Again, and again. And Ian is chuckling, and you can hear Jill and Michael and his mum in the background chatting and laughing, and the tape ends, and his mum says, See? That wasn't so hard. And Shy says, don't fucking bother, Mum. And Ian says, hey, 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 hang on a minute. And Shy says, you can get lost, Ian. And Ian says, whoa there. And Shy imitates him, whoa there, and kicks the box of tapes across the living room floor and leaves into the hallway, slamming the door to the overlapping sounds of, here we go again, and we can't win, and come back here this second, and I'll let him go. And he has the song stuck in his head as he skulks around the park, smoking, spitting, and feeling boring. But that's all he knows. Just that bit. He doesn't know the rest of the song. So I've been talking to Max Porter. We've been talking about his latest novel, Shy, which is out in the UK now from Faber. Max, thanks again for coming in and talking to us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.